Lord, thank you so much for uh, the time to be together. Thank you for this season of the year uh, and all that it means to all of us. Lord, we pray that uh, your spirit would attend us uh, not only this morning but throughout this season, that you would help us to maintain uh, our focus on what this season is really all about, that you sent your son Christ to be our Savior. And, uh, Lord, we welcome him. We love you. We love him. And, uh, Lord, we just pray this morning that uh, you would strengthen us by your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the carol that we we just sang together is a a very modern adaptation of God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. Uh, I would encourage you sometime during this season, as we are in this series, God Rest You Mary, that you would uh, maybe go online or find an old hymnal and just uh, meditate on on uh, the lyrics uh, to this song. It's one of the very oldest songs that we still sing during the Christmas season. It was probably written, uh, historians think, in the 16th century, I uh, think the 1500s, so it's uh, it's not it's not new. Uh, actually didn't go to print uh, until the 18th century. And so all of the uh, all the manuscripts between the 15th and 18th century were written by hand. Uh, the oldest handwritten manuscript that's been found dates back to 1650 and it resides in the library at Oxford University. Uh, if you're a Charles Dickens fan and you're familiar with his Christmas Carol, published in 1843, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge hears this song being sung by a little boy through his door and uh, threatens to hit him with a ruler if he doesn't stop singing it immediately. Uh, most importantly, when you review the actual lyrics to this hymn, you come quickly to the realization that this anonymous songwriter, we have no idea who, what, who it was that wrote this song, but that person understood and communicated the essential elements of the gospel and the power of Christ, what the entrance into human history means for all who believe in him. I will say to you, it's never been one of my favorite Christmas carols, but it certainly isn't my least favorite either. I, I think that d- dubious distinction would have to go to uh, something like Grandma Got rain- Run Over by a Reindeer <laughs> or uh, Santa Baby. Those are kind of on a par in my mind. <laughs> But a question I've always wondered is, uh, where does the comma go? Where does the comma go? Maybe you don't think about those things. I think I'm just weird in that sense. That a lot of the people think the comma should go between you and Mary. That is, God rest ye, comma, Mary gentlemen. You'll actually find the, the title with the comma there in that spot in, in lots of songbooks and hymnals. Uh, Maybe they were picturing a group of men enjoying the Christmas punch bowl a bit too much, uh, having a good time of it nonetheless. But most music historians agree that the line originally read, God rest ye merry, comma, gentlemen. God rest ye merry, gentlemen. You might ask, well, how can they be so sure? Last December, I read an article that that talked about this very question, and it was then, actually, that I decided that this would be the theme of our Christmas series here in 2021. When the carol was written, the word rest didn't mean to sleep, 
didn't mean to uh, spend time on the couch or to enjoy a little bit of leisure time as we might think of rest today. Instead, it meant to make or to keep. In other words, God make you marry. God keep you marry. But neither did the word marry mean what we think it meant. When we think of someone who's married, we think of someone who's happy, who has a a positive outlook on life, a friendly disposition. But in the 16th century, the word marry meant great. It meant strong. In fact, it meant mighty. So in 16th century English, God rest ye marry means God make and keep you mighty. Isn't that good? I love that. God make you and keep you mighty. In fact, the word marry in those days was used for anyone who excelled in what they did. A merry singer, a merry artist, a merry soldier, a merry warrior, a merry teacher. Robin Hood's band of merry men weren't just jolly fellows in tights. They were fighters and they were warriors. You might think of the Old Testament and David's mighty men. They were the men that he wanted most to be around him, his best soldiers, his his strongest warriors. But we might honestly ask the question this morning, is it really possible to grow stronger, to become mighty through the Christmas season? Is that really possible? For many, the, the Christmas season, like otherwise Uh, Other otherwise festive seasons of the year can be really difficult. It may serve as a reminder of bad memories, of family dysfunction, of experiences of, of abuse or loss or even poverty. It may be that someone special left or died during a past Christmas season and the pain is still there and it gets stirred up all over again as the Christmas season approaches. So can Christmas be for us a season of strengthening then? Can it be? And I believe it can. Others of us find ourselves not only exhausted on the 26th of December, but out of money, maybe disillusioned with Christmas itself. I heard of someone this week, who said they detest Christmas. And I'd like to suggest, if if that describes you, that, that you may consider whether you've missed the point of Christmas entirely. And you may be worshiping the wrong thing. You may have spent a great deal of time and money, effort, emotional energy, only to find that you climbed a ladder that was leaning against the wrong wall. You know, every year at this time, we we hear that familiar and well-worn slogan, let's keep Christ in Christmas. But I'd like to suggest to you that it's not a matter of keeping Christ in Christmas. It's actually a matter of keeping Christmas at all. Because Christ is Christmas. And Christmas is ultimately one thing and one thing only the remembrance and the celebration of the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, we do all kinds of things and call it celebrating Christmas. 
But to really keep Christmas is to remember and to celebrate the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus. Everything else is a diversion and a distraction. And maybe, just maybe, if you're one of those who is disillusioned with Christmas, it would be a worthy exercise to take stock of your expectations, your schedules, your priorities, even your budget for the coming weeks, and ask yourselves if what you've planned can actually be called celebrating Christmas. See, if Christ is not the center and the goal of of our observances, then you may not honestly claim to be celebrating his birth, but rather you're celebrating something other, something foreign, something less. So in these three messages leading up to Christmas Day, I'd like to suggest three ways that we can gain strength through this season and beyond. Uh, At least I hope you'll be strengthened by them. Uh, All of it will center on the mystery of the Incarnation. This doctrine says that at a designated point in space and time, God entered the world in the person of Jesus in a way that he had never done before and has never done since, never will do again. It it tells us that Jesus is the unique God-man who came to be our Savior. And this morning I'd like to ask you to think with me about the fact that we can take strength when we realize that Jesus' credentials as Messiah are proven by fulfilled prophecy. We can take strength when we realize that Jesus' credentials as Messiah are proven by fulfilled prophecy. We're going to examine several prophecies regarding Jesus that are fulfilled in his birth and that have the potential to strengthen us by demonstrating over and over again that God always keeps his promises, that that Jesus is the promised Messiah. You have a lot of blanks on your notes today. I've I've included the scriptures so that uh, you might not miss those. Uh, I'm going to move rather rapidly. I'm going to ask you to move rapidly with me. So get out that pen, get it ready to go. We're going to examine several prophecies, 15 actually, regarding Jesus that are fulfilled in his birth and that strengthen us by demonstrating his integrity. Prophet Isaiah chapter 48 said this, the former things I declared of old, God speaking through the prophet, the former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them, my carved image and my metal image commanded them. Or as we might say today, it's just a coincidence. It's just a coincidence, this seeming fulfillment of prophecy. In Numbers twenty-three nineteen, we read, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? 
In Luke 24, we hear Jesus speaking to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Not might be fulfilled, not probably will be fulfilled, not hopefully will be fulfilled, but must be fulfilled. The law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that just about completes the Old Testament, doesn't it? Well, let's begin with the Old Testament prophet Micah prophesying 700 years before Christ and what he had to say about Jesus' eternal preexistence, his eternal preexistence. Prophecy is in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now listen, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. We see a fulfillment in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14. In the beginning was the word, John wrote, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, saying that of Jesus, that He is before all things. That is, He precedes all things. He existed before all things. And in Him, all things hold together. Revelation 22, at the end of days, we hear Jesus Himself, the glorified, risen Jesus, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Next, we see that he was born of the seed of the woman. The prophecy, the very first prophecy in all of Scripture is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It comes on the heels of Adam and Eve sinning in the garden. And God is pronouncing to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent, respectively, the consequences of their sin, of their rebellion. And to the serpent... God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word offspring there means, is the word seed. It's the Hebrew word that's translated seed. In this case, the the Redeemer that God promised And isn't it so like God? Immediately upon the sin of man separating ourselves from him, that he promises a redeemer. And this redeemer that God promised who would crush the head of the serpent, notice is the seed not of the man, but of the woman, the offspring of the woman 
foreshadowing the fact the Messiah would be conceived without the participation of a biological father. It's so unlike most Hebrew discussions of lineage or genealogy. It would be the seed not of the man, the offspring not of the man, but of the woman. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5, we see a fulfillment, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We go on and we see in Scripture that Jesus was to be born of a virgin. And the prophecy is in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, again, 700 years before Christ. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Remarkable, remarkable prophecy. And there it is. It just hangs out there. In Matthew 1, we see the prophecy. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son. That is, he knew her not, means he didn't have sexual relations with her until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Called his name Jesus. Yeshua, Deliverer, Savior. Again, we see in Isaiah 7.14 that he would be called Emmanuel. He would be called Emmanuel. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, the fulfillment. It's in Matthew 1.23. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, because he was writing to a Jewish audience, this phrase, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, appears many, many times. Especially here during the birth narrative of Jesus. He would be called Emmanuel, God with us in fulfillment of what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Next, he is the Son of God. 
David, King David, a thousand years before Christ, penned Psalm 2, which is regarded by everyone as a messianic psalm. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. To call a psalm a messianic psalm means that it has a, an immediate fulfillment in history at the time it was written, but then it has a long-term fulfillment in the person of Messiah. And you remember that Messiah was known as the son of David. We'll come to that in a moment. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you're my son today, I've begotten you. And the fulfillment is in Matthew 3 when Jesus was baptized. Immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You may recall the story of Jesus with his three closest disciples on what's referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was glorified before them and Moses and Elijah appeared with them. In that, on that occasion, we read again, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. In Matthew 16, verses 13 to 17, we read, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi in the far north of Israel, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In John 1.34, we hear the words of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Messiah, that crazy guy out in the wilderness. I have seen and have borne witness that this, Jesus is the Son of God. In Mark 3.11, we read that whenever the unclean spirits saw him, Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. These who lived in the spirit world, these spirits knew him, recognized him, submitted themselves to him. Matthew 1.1 tells us that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 opens with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, son of Abraham. We see a fulfillment in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words, the promises to Abraham were focused in one person, 
in your seed, in another place, in your seed, it says, in your offspring, singular, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. He's not only the seed of Abraham, he's the son of Isaac. Genesis 21.12, But God said to Abraham, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The blessing comes to Isaac, to his descendants. And the fulfillment of that, again, we see in Jesus' genealogy in Luke chapter 3. Jesus, the son of Isaac. Why does that matter? Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Now God eliminates one half of the lineage of Abraham from whom Messiah would come. The descendants of Ishmael are the Arab nations. Secondly, he's the son of Jacob. Son of Jacob. The prophecy is in Numbers 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The scepter, the symbol of rule. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And again, in the fulfillment, Luke three twenty-three and 34, Jesus is the son of Jacob. And again, why does that matter? Because Isaac had two sons. Jacob and Esau. And now God eliminates one half of the lineage of Isaac from whom Messiah would come. Next we read that in Genesis 49.10 that he's of the tribe of Judah. Jacob, whose name became Israel, pronouncing his blessing on each of his 12 sons, gave this prophecy that points down through the ages again to the rule and reign of the Messiah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And again, we see that fulfilled in Jesus' genealogy in Luke chapter 3, Jesus the son of Judah. And again, why does that matter? Jacob had 12 sons, out of which developed the 12 tribes, the 12 uh, tribes of the Hebrew nation. And now God eliminates 11 twelfths of the tribes of Israel from whom descendant uh, Messiah would be descended. And then we learn that he's of the lineage of Jesse, the prophet Isaiah, again, 700 years before Christ, saw that Messiah would be a descendant of Jesse, the father of King David. There shall come forth a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. You just picture a, a green shoot coming up from amongst the roots of a stump. Jesus. The branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The genealogy of Jesus, again in Luke 3, identifies Jesus as the son of Jesse. Out of all of the families in the tribe of Judah, God narrows it to one. He's of the house of David. He's of the house of David. 
Over 600 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Jeremiah wrote, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And again, we see the fulfillment in in Jesus' genealogy, Jesus, the son of David. Again, why does that matter? Jesse had at least eight sons. You can read that in 1 Samuel 16, 10 to 11. And now God eliminates all of Jesse's sons except one, the youngest, the shepherd, the insignificant one, David. Next, the prophets tell us that he was to be born at Bethlehem. He was to be born at Bethlehem. Again, Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, of old, from ancient days. Matthew 2.1 tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. In Luke chapter 2, we read that in response to a census that was ordered by Caesar Augustus, Joseph also went up, also meaning along with everyone else, went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Everyone went home went back to their ancestral home for this census to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Again, why is it significant? It's significant because it's fulfillment. It's in fulfillment of the prophets. But also, think about this. God now eliminates all of the cities in the world but one for the birthplace of Messiah, for the entrance of his son into the world. Psalm 72.10 tells us that he was presented with gifts at his birth. And again, Psalm 72 was written by Solomon, King David's son. He was David's successor as the king of Israel. So the short-term application of Psalm 72 is to Solomon himself, The long-term application is clearly to the promised Messiah. Again, Psalm 72, a clearly messianic psalm. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. These areas mentioned in Psalm 72.10 are associated with regions and cities in ancient, within the boundaries of ancient Arabia. In Matthew 2, 1 and 11, we see the fulfillment, wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Finally, in Jeremiah 31, verse 15, we read that all of the baby boys around Bethlehem, two years of age and younger were to be massacred. Prophet Jeremiah saw it, thus says the Lord. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. 
Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rachel was the wife of Jacob or Israel. Her tomb is in Bethlehem. It's still there today. And she is represented here symbolically as the mother of all the children in and around Bethlehem. The fulfillment of the prophecy is in Matthew two sixteen to 18. Remember that the Magi, the wise men, having found Jesus and worshipped him, knowing that Herod had evil intent, went home by another route. And then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years of old, two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Fifteen prophecies cluster around the birth of Jesus. There are roughly 330-plus prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the person and work of Messiah. And of those over 300 prophecies fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, what do you think are the odds that even eight of them would be fulfilled in one man from the time they were written until today? Just eight, just eight. Before I give you the answer to that, I want, I want to give you some other numbers that will put it in perspective. In a lottery in which you pick six numbers from a possible pool of 49 numbers, your realistic odds of winning the jackpot, correctly choosing all six numbers drawn, are one in 13,983,816. That's one chance in almost 14 million. Don't play the lottery. Bad investment. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, estimates that the unconditional probability of being struck by lightning is one in one million per year and one in 10,000 over a lifetime. So your odds of being struck by lightning once in your life is about one in 10,000. Your odds of being struck by lightning twice in your lifetime are about one in nine million. Imagine that. But the odds that just eight of the Old Testament prophecies, of the over 300 Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus would be fulfilled in one man from the time they were written until the present. That number is 1 in 10 to the 17th. That's 1 in 100 with how many? 1, 2, 3, 15 additional zeros. That number is 1 in 100 quadrillion. I, I Googled, it, Googled that to find out what that number was. It just looked like a gazillion to me. But 
one in 100 quadrillion. So let's change the number of the over 300 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What are the odds that 48 of them would be fulfilled in one man from the time they were written until the present? These statistics are from a man named Peter Stoner, who uh, was a, a mathematician, a scientist. And that number is 1 in 10 to the 157th power. The number one with 157 zeros behind it. I went online to find out what this number is called, and it took me to a website, and this is true, titled Pointless Gigantic List of Numbers. <laughs> one in 10 to the 157th, that just 48 of the 330 plus prophecies would be fulfilled in one man. Let me ask you this morning, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Just a teacher? Just a great religious leader? Just a man? Who do you say Jesus is? Maybe you're further persuaded this morning of the, of the true identity of Jesus, of God's Son, God's promised Messiah. My, my hope is that meditating on these things, reflecting on these things, you'll take encouragement from a solid confidence in the person in whom you've put your faith. And maybe this morning you, 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 you've you come to a place where, where taking the step to put your faith in Christ maybe makes a whole lot more sense than it did before you came in this morning. Because no one can claim that Jesus is not the one whom the prophets were speaking of. No one can make that claim with any credibility. Jesus is precisely whom the prophets said he is. The eternal, incarnate Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, our Savior, the only Savior. This morning you can put your faith in Christ very simply in the quietness of your own heart, but you might want to pray a prayer This sounds something like this, and let's bow our heads together. God, this morning I I realize that the question is answered. It was answered by the prophets. It was answered in all of the fulfillment in the life and work of Jesus, that he is who he claimed to be. He is who the prophets said he would be. He is whom... The apostles said he was in the New Testament. He's, he is the one whom the church is saying today he is. The Son of God, the Eternal One, the Messiah, the only Savior, the only provision for my sin. And so today I want to just 
settle this in my own heart before you and say, Jesus, I receive you. I acknowledge you. I submit to you. I invite you to come into my life. Take up residence in me. Forgive my sins. Make me the person that you meant for me to be when you first thought of me. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.